The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58, considering tonight that phrase of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body, part 16 of this study, which we'll be concluding, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Reading from 1 Corinthians 15, the classic New Testament text on the resurrected body, Paul speaking about this concluding his great chapter on the resurrection. Listen to God's word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting?' 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing as we think about your word, as we study it, as we reflect on this tremendous truth, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ. Amen. In The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain, the author, portrays a low view of heaven when he writes and speaks about the Christian spinster who's a person in the book, Miss Watson, takes a dim view of Huckleberry Finn's fun-loving spirit. And in the book, according to Huck, Huck Finn says, speaking to Miss Watson, she went on and told me all about the good place, heaven that is. She said all a body would do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there. And she said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Funny but sad, isn't it? And later in Mark Twain's life, in his autobiography, when he's laboring under age, the weight of the years upon him, he says this very depressing thought. He says, the burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. Speaking of those dying. And they vanished from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness. Pretty despairing. What a contrast to the perspective of Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher and a contemporary of Mark Twain, who says, to come to thee, Lord, is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Two radically different views of the life after death. Well, this evening we consider the subject of the resurrection of the body, and the Apostle Paul, in chapter 15, up to this point, up to verse 35, has been dealing with the question of whether there is a resurrection at all, whether there is a resurrection of the dead, and he's argued very effectively to that end. And now in verse 35, after he has proven that, he comes to this question, how are the dead raised up? With what kind of body do they come? Two questions, a twofold question here, and he answers these questions. I'm sure that most of us can identify with this question that was being asked. For many of us have, have wondered about and thought about and speculated about the resurrection and the life to come. What kind of existence will this be? Will I recognize others and will they recognize me? Will it be like Huck Finn says, just sitting up there on a cloud somewhere strumming a harp? What a, what a, a, a crass view of heaven. What kind of body will I have? Well, 
These are just a few of the questions that naturally come to our mind, and we hope to briefly address what the Apostle says here in this extensive text that I read. There may be much that we would like to know about the next life, the life to come, but we can thank God that He has revealed in His Word all that we need to know for our faith to be strengthened and that we can anticipate the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And really, this humble attitude is the attitude that we should bring to the study this evening, seeking to understand by God's help what He has revealed and putting to rest our speculations and just trusting Him concerning much that He has not revealed. It's interesting that in verse 36, Paul begins by answering this with that phrase, you foolish person. We might say, why does, why does Paul begin in this pejorative, negative way? But we must bear in mind that Paul is not coming to these questions about the resurrection body as if somebody is coming humbly with a question before the Lord. But rather, Paul has been dealing in 1 Corinthians with people who are ridiculing the truth of God. So Paul is addressing them by, when he says, you foolish person. Their questions and their arguments don't reflect sincere question of someone who wants to know the truth. Rather, the mockery of those who think they already know the truth and they think the Apostle Paul and the Word of God are wrong. They're taking this idea of bodily resurrection, apparently, and they were making it seem absurd. It kind of reminds me of some of the questions or the arguments that you may have heard about the resurrection, and these people in Paul's day might have asked the same kind of thing. What about the person whose remains have been burned and scattered, they might have asked? Or what about the child that died in infancy? What kind of body is he or she going to have? Here's one that I once heard. What about the missionary eaten by cannibals who were later converted, and in the resurrection, who gets the molecules that were part of the body originally? This line of argument is just absurd, and rightly Paul says, you fool. But that's the kind of thing they must have been arguing against the Apostle Paul. Well, what do we learn then about the resurrection body from this classic text? The first point I want us to make is this. In the resurrection of the body, our identity continues, but with glorious transformation. In the resurrection of the body, our identity continues. But there is glorious transformation. And there are two illustrations that Paul uses in the first part of our text. The first is the illustration of a seed. And he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other kind of grain. And he goes on to talk about a seed in that sense. What can we say about a seed? There is a continuity of identity between an acorn and an oak tree, but there's also glorious transformation. If you had lived somewhere and never seen a tree at all and put an acorn in the ground and tried to guess what was going to eventually come out of that seed, you would be greatly surprised eventually. Jesus resurrected body we might say, is the prototype. There was continuity. Jesus was 
ultimately recognized by his disciples. Yes, there were times such as on the road to Emmaus when they were kept from understanding who he was, but he was recognizable. They knew him when they were with him. He was a man. He was male in that sense. He showed them his nail prints in his hands. And so there was a continuity of Jesus' identity. He wasn't a completely different individual. He was the same person. But there was also dramatic transformation. He was now glorified. And that prototypical resurrection body of Christ, we're told, is the first fruits. We're going to be like him. And the second illustration Paul uses here is an illustration from creation, verses 39 to 41, about the diversity of created things, the different bodies created things have. He talks about the kind of bodies human have, and then animals, birds, fish, and then he talks about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. And this, again, underlines this point of differences in glory, differences in terms of transformation. But note in verse 38, I'd like to just emphasize that Paul points us to the power of God, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Just as in creation itself, creation was made by the power of God, each body, each diverse part of creation brought into being by the power of God. So we have to keep in mind that it's the same mighty power of God that is ultimately going to give the resurrection body to those who belong to Christ. Many people in Paul's day and in Christ's day stumbled over the doctrine of bodily resurrection because they were thinking merely in human physical terms. They were like the Sadducees who, de- who denied the resurrection. When the Sadducees came to Jesus with their question about the seven brothers who had all been husbands of the same wife, one after the other, Jesus rebuked their whole outlook. He said, do you not err because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? They were thinking in in just human terms. They weren't taking into account the power of God. And so we might think, well, how are the dead raised up? The Scriptures make it clear. They're raised up by the infinite power of our God. Do we question how that can be? Then we're really questioning the power of God. The second point I want us to see is that the resurrection body will be imperishable, verses 42 to 49. Really, this is an expansion about the whole idea of transformation. Our bodies will be the same, but they'll be transformed. And the primary thought in verses 42 through 49 is that now our bodies will be imperishable. But there are four contrasts the Apostle Paul brings out here to underline this fact. He still is using this imagery of a seed. And he says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable. The first contrast here is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. We live in bodies that are perishable. 
but the body of resurrection will be imperishable. It's hard for us to even imagine fully what that's going to be like. And the rest of these contrasts underline that. The second one is this whole idea of dishonor. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. The present bodies that we have are bodies of dishonor in one sense. You need only to think of creation itself. Man was created in the image of God. Above all the rest of creation, mankind was given the capacity to know God and to reflect and manifest God. But what happened when sin came about? Dishonor came about. Sin has marred our ability to glorify God and to reflect his image. And this dishonor is seen nowhere more powerfully than in the grave. Death is the ultimate dishonoring of the glory of God. But the resurrection body will be one of glory. It will bring the full manifestation of the sons of God. We will be able to glorify God fully with all of our capacities as God originally intended it to be. What a great transformation that will be. And then the third contrast is weakness to power. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. In this present body, we are weak. The scriptures often talk about that. The spirit is willing, Jesus said, but the flesh is weak. The body is weak. Don't we all feel that when we try to pray? What may happen? Well, we we want to pray, but we fall asleep. Or, you know, we get uncomfortable sitting there or on our knees or whatever the case might be, and we get distracted by many things. Our human flesh, our bodies, our minds are, are weak. But the resurrection body is raised in power. Nowhere is that weakness more evident than in our mortality. There's this scene in the movie Braveheart. William Wallace's Braveheart, and... Uh, He's always fighting against the king of England, King Edward. And King Edward is this very powerful king, and he's always catching Braveheart unaware and trying to be ahead of him. And, but near the end of his life, King Edward has become very weak. Whatever it is, he can't even talk anymore. And he's sitting on his throne there, and this daughter-in-law of his who really loves Braveheart, this is a Hollywood version of William Wallace, of course, but she's standing right behind him, and she whispers these things in his ear just to tantalize him, telling him certain things that just make his blood boil. But King Edward, the most powerful king for many, many years, he's so weak, he can't do anything about it. All he can do is gurgle a little bit, and that's all he can do. What a picture of the weakness of this bodily life. And then Finally, there's that phrase, the natural body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. These phrases bring questions to our minds. Paul is not saying that a spiritual body is composed of spirit, as if we were we will not be physical. No, he's he's saying the natural body is a body suited to this life. The spiritual body body, which is physical as well, is a body suited to that life. It's a body which enables us to fully express the spiritual world, the spirit, the life of the spirit, the body which answers the need of the spirit. In heaven, the spirit will be willing and the flesh will not be weak. 
The two will naturally go together. It will be a spiritual body in that sense. We will have bodies that are now suited to this wonderful transformation that will take place. Jesus speaks the same thing in Luke 20 when he's speaking to the Sadducees, and he says, They which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that we will be angels, that we will be simply spirit, as angels are. But our Lord's point is that we will be equal to the angels in eternality, in holiness. Our lives, our bodies, our physical resurrected bodies will be suited to life in heaven and how glorious that existence will bring. I think of this point, and I just think about the powerful of this world, the athletic sports stars, the people who are the wealthiest, the celebrities, the most politically powerful people in this world. All of them still fall under these categories of perishable, dishonor, weakness, natural body. And eventually, doesn't that become evident? And you read in the news of of someone famous or someone who was once very strong, dying to bring home this imperishable nature of the resurrection body. Paul shows a comparison of Adam and Christ. I'm not going to go into this in depth. Paul is saying there's a vast difference between Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Adam had a perfect human body before he fell into sin, unlike ours but it still wasn't a body suited for the eternal state. We don't know for sure, but we can only speculate that if he had successfully passed this probationary period in the garden, God would have given him a body that would have been suited for eternal life. Maybe this transformation had to do with eating of the tree of life as well. For after Adam's sin, we read that he, he banished, the Lord banished him from the garden, lest he eat of that tree of life. But Adam possessed only a natural body. Yes, originally one without sin and corruption. But Christ, at his resurrection, was made a life-giving spirit. And so Paul is setting up this great contrast between the two. And Jesus Christ is both the pattern for our resurrection bodies and the source of life for our resurrection bodies as well. Reminds me of the Apostle John. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a powerful statement that is. And the point of all of this is that Adam and Christ are patterns. Every single person on this earth has borne and continues to bear the image of Adam, the image of the earthly. But the glorious hope of Christians is that we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We shall bear the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying the final outcome is not in doubt. Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his death, resurrection from the dead, there is no doubt 
God is on the throne. He directs all things according to his appointed end. We read in the call to worship about all things are from and through and to our Lord God. And he has an infinitely wise and holy plan. And there is nothing uncertain for those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And even when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, if the Lord doesn't return first, we know that there stands a resurrection to eternal life and glory at the other end. And it is the Lord's doing. As Christians, we can hold to that tremendous truth and praise him and glorify him because of it. The Greeks, you see, and probably a lot of the influence of the Corinthian church was because of Greek philosophy. The Greeks' philosophy was concerning the immortality of the soul. And this often seeps into Christian thought. And it's really not a biblical way to think. Thinking about the life to come simply as immortality of the soul. Now, we know that in the immediate heaven or the intermediate heaven, as it's sometimes called, that stage after we die and before resurrection takes place at the last day, we will be with the Lord in a disembodied state, apparently. But that's not the ultimate state. But Greek philosophy tended to say this, because they really only cared about the immortality of the soul, this led to complete disregard for the body. It led them to say, well, you can indulge in the most degrading forms of sensual pleasure, and it didn't matter because the body didn't matter. Or you could go to the other extreme and misuse the body in terms of ascetic behavior. You could starve your body or try to beat the evil out of it in some way. But both of these things, Extremes were seen as okay and appropriate behavior because the body was viewed as only the evil prison house of the soul, so to speak. And it only lasted in this life. Do you see how wrong that doctrine is? Do you see how the doctrine of the resurrection of the body is important for Christians to understand? And the biblical view teaches the sanctity of the body. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it will manifest the glory of God for all eternity. And so the resurrection of the body makes a difference in terms of how we live now. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, often spoke of heaven. And he said this, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness. Really makes you stop and think, isn't it? Here was a man who believed in the resurrection of the body. And in his early 20s, some of you may know that Edwards composed his famous set of resolutions to live by. And one read this, I resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Resolve to obtain as much happiness in the other world as I possibly came. He's talking about seeking the kingdom of God, seeking the reward that comes from living for Jesus Christ in this life. And so our third point comes to verses 50 to 57, the manner of our resurrection. Here Paul comes to the climatic conclusion of the text 
and he describes various aspects of how this resurrection is going to take place. Maybe this is familiar territory, but let's just look at the main themes here. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's continuing this theme about the imperishable. Then he says in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery is something that was once hidden, but is now revealed by God. So this truth about the resurrection is now revealed by God through the apostle Paul. And he says it this way, we shall not all sleep meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Notice when this takes place, at the last trumpet. Paul is saying, if we die before Jesus Christ returns, before that great and glorious day, then we still wait for that final day when all believers of every time and every age and every place will be resurrected bodily from the dead at the return of Jesus Christ. The trumpet will sound. It's very similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where in verse 16, Paul says it this way, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, the resurrection. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So at the last trump, both believers who are still alive, who are caught up in the air to meet those who have died before and are resurrected, And Paul interestingly says, we will be with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. So it clearly implies that we will know others. We will be with them when we meet the Lord. It's a great day. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, describe that this resurrection will take place in a way that finally overturns even death itself. In verse 54, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is the final hour when death itself is destroyed, and the victory of death is gone. The sting of death is gone. And how does that take place? Verse 56 elaborates on that. It says, the sting of death is sin. Why does death have power over us? Because of sin. So death has this mighty sting. And the power of sin is the law. We could go into that at some depth. But the point is here, the law makes us aware of our sin. The law, in a sense, aggravates our sin because it shows sin to be sinful. And so, Sin has its power, in a sense, by the law. It's not through the law and obedience to the law that any of us can come to God and hope for eternal life. It's only by what Jesus Christ did. In fact, Paul concludes with that. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you hope to overcome death and to achieve resurrection by doing your best, 
Don't we all know that our efforts will be useless? No wonder Mark Twain was so despairing near the end of his life as he thought about the end of his life. It's impossible to be saved by obedience to to the law. No, law just brings forth more the power of sin and death. We can't keep the law. But isn't this, in a sense, what the majority of Americans are trying to do by living a pretty good life, trying to do their best and hoping that they're good enough in the life to come, if there is a life to come? We know that the Scriptures say pretty good is not good enough. In fact, it's only pretty good in the sight of human beings. It only takes one sin, James says, to make us liable for hell. No, the law is the strength of sin. The law is holy and good and just, but it serves only to condemn us. It serves to bring to light our sin with the standard of a holy and pure God. So how is this sting removed? It's only through faith in Jesus Christ and his powerful death and resurrection on our behalf. And so for the believer, the sting of sin has been forgiven and removed in Christ even though most likely we will all pass through death if the Lord doesn't return. But we can rejoice with Paul. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it's in the present tense. Paul doesn't say, thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, although in a sense that would have been true. He gave us the victory Jesus once and for all died and rose again, but he puts it in the present tense. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The focus is on the here and now. What has been gained for us by Christ is daily being given to us by God. Spiritual life, resurrection life at work in our bodies and our hearts and our lives. Now he gives us the victory and one day, Because we participate in Christ's victory over sin and death through our union with him, one day that will be consummated when our bodies are raised triumphantly from death and we will be with the Lord forever. What an amazing truth this is. We need to take hold of this truth. It's not easy to walk with the Lord in this present life, is it? There are many temptations. There are many difficulties in this life. But Jesus Christ is the source of our hope and our victory. And there are two applications the Apostle Paul makes. I'm going to draw two from that final verse. One is, stand fast. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. The idea there of those words is of stable purpose, heading in a single direction. If you're going to make a trip, Across the United States, you have to head in one direction. No matter cars going all different ways, you have to keep heading in the same direction. You have to live in line with the Word of God against the seductive power of unbelief and worldly influence on every side. You have to stand firm. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that one of the marks of Christian immaturity is that you're tossed like a, a ship in rough seas. You're tossed back and forth by the waves of doctrine, by different ideas, and maybe you're confused about some of this. And you need to grow to maturity in the Bible, in what the Bible tells us is true and right. And the world is so powerful on all of us. 
We read these things, and sometimes they're like a fairy tale to us. We don't take them to heart. They don't have an impact on our daily life. The world seeks to seduce us to live only for the here and now. Isn't that what you see all around you? The world is telling us, live for now. Seek this world. And Jesus is telling us something entirely different. He's saying, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things that you need will be added to you. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 19, it's very interesting, I think, that when Paul says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't say, you know, if it turns out that all this is false, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, well, then it would have been okay because we will have lived a Christian life, and that's a noble life. And so even if it all turns out wrong, then we're doing the right thing. No, he says, if it turns out that all this is false, then we are to be pitied. We are of all people most miserable if this is false. He said, we should have lived for only this world. Christians don't have that mindset. No, they are not living for this world. Yes, we have to live in this world. That's what makes it so hard. But we're to live with a view to heaven. But there's a second line of application here, and that's work hard. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord labor is not in vain. The doctrine of the resurrection of the body and that Jesus Christ is resurrected and we stand in him, that motivates us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word work there is a word for toil, hard work. It's not just a word that means a little effort here and there. And Paul says we're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, not just once in a while, not just when we feel like it. It's to be the characteristic of our lives. Yes, we have to work regular jobs. Yes, we have many responsibilities. Yes, maybe you're raising kids. You're doing lots of things. But all of your life is to be an abounding in this fundamental work of the Lord, making Him known, living for Him, being in communion with Him, having your eyes set on the things that are not seen by faith, walking in that pathway. Because there is coming a day of resurrection. The trumpet is going to sound. Even Christians are going to give an account to God. Yes, it's going to be great joy, but we'll give an account for every idle word, Jesus says. But we can know this wonderful truth that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The world is not going to give you praise for the labor that you do for Jesus Christ. And people in this world may not know much of anything. The newspapers, the TV shows, the news broadcasts aren't telling us about the labor for the Lord that's going on around the world this day and this week. But we know that our God knows these things. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Seek first the kingdom of God. So, this evening, examine your life. Ask yourself, am I living in accordance with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his great and glorious promise that the body of the believer will be raised imperishable? Be steadfast and abound 
in the work of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you that it's very easy to be caught up with this world. We think of the busy pace that is a characteristic of our society, the many things that distract us, the media, the technology, all these things that are good and of their place, but they overwhelm us with this world. And so we're very little focused and fitted for heaven. Forgive us, enable us, change us more and more into the image of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth of your word. We stand in him this evening. In his name we pray, amen.